Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Listeners, welcome to the 12th episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast, coming to you on October 19, 2017. I am your host, Rudolf, and I am talking to you, as you might guess from my nice little accent, from Europe. More precisely from Austria, from a smallish town just a little outside of our capital, Vienna. Thoth Hermes podcast is, as our regular listeners know, a podcast dealing with all kinds of different aspects of the so-called Western esoteric tradition, which means that esoteric, occult and paranormal subjects are our thing. The podcast is centered around interviews with important figures working in those realms, lasting for about an hour. And beyond that, we present some news items, book reviews and also some music. All our content as well as the current featured visual artist and all previous episodes can be accessed also from our website www.thoughthermes.com that is spelled T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. From the website, you can directly stream or download our episode, which can also be found on Apple Podcasts, Blueberry, Spreaker, Stitcher, Android, and an ever-increasing number of podcast services who have added us to their playlists. And their website also presents the show notes to our episode, of course. This week's featured guest and interview partner is one of the most experienced teachers, authors and esoteric practitioners, not only in her country of origin, but in the whole Western world. Creator and leader of the Servants of the Light, or as she also prefers to call them, the Alexandrinian Brotherhood. It is the incomparable Dolores Ashcroft Novitsky. Our featured musician on today's episode is Swedish musical artist Thomas von Wachenfeld. More about him a bit later. But before we delve into the interview, we have some other topics to talk about. And now, 
some feedback. Well, actually feedback is not completely correct for today because after some short feedback, it will be more of a view of what is to come on Thoughts Hermes in the near future. Something that I promised to talk to you today in the last show. But indeed, some feedback first. One of our newer listeners, Todd, writes to me saying, Hooray, Rudolf! Thoth Hermes podcast has quickly become one of my absolute favorites. The first one I listened to was episode 10, and I have now listened to all the others as well, some more than once. Thanks for what you are doing here. Well, Todd, thank you so much for that enthusiastic review you gave me here, and I can assure you that I will continue to try doing my very best. You know, after each episode, when I listen to it myself, I hear dozens of things I would like to improve and change, and this is a never-ending story, but it is great to hear from people like you, and I'm really happy to say that we have, on average, over those first 11 episodes past, more than a thousand listeners per show, which I think is great. But as I just said, this gives me also a responsibility and a new challenge to improve each time. And therefore, I would like to announce a few little changes and also improvements for the near future, knowing that all these things are only going step by step, so no revolution coming up on Thoth Hermes, rather steady development. This is now episode 12, and I find it a good idea for different kinds of reasons to split my episodes into seasons. And isn't 12 a perfect number for that? So, consider this episode as being the last one on season 1 of Thoth Hermes podcast. Each upcoming season will also comprise 12 regular episodes in the same way as you have now been used to it. Every other Thursday you should be getting a new episode. There will be just a really small break, maybe a week or two, between seasons. Our new season 2 will now start on November 9, and who will be the first featured guest on its first episode, I will announce as usual at the end of today's show, so stay tuned. But there is more to come. As a podcast that celebrates our Western tradition, I also want to celebrate its festivals with you. So there will be a special edition of Thoth Hermes at each of the four main festivals around the year, and one on each of the Sun festivals. Those of you who read my Facebook or Twitter messages already know that I would like to have your input on those special editions. And by input, I mean texts, music, also pictures for the website, all kinds of things adapted to the respective festival. The very first special season edition is, of course, due on October 31st for the special Samhain Halloween edition, so very close already. Do send in your thoughts, ideas, and most of all, contributions. I am waiting for them. Last but not least, 
Thoth Hermes will, starting with the new season, get its own membership content. On each new moon, there will be a special new moon membership edition. One show per month, just for members. Its precise format is still a bit of work in progress, but it will differ a bit from the regular episodes. I shall tell you more about this early November, and of course, also in the first episode of our season 2. What is clear already is the date on which this first membership episode is going to be launched, because November's new moon is set. It will be Saturday, November 18. So let's just repeat that for your agendas. The next hotspot will be October 31st, our special Samhain Halloween edition, and I'm expecting your contributions. Our next regular episode, which will be opening season 2, is due on November 9. And for future subscribers, or members as I prefer to call them, expect the very first New Moon membership episode of Toth Hermes on November 18. How to get back to me with questions, ideas, remarks, criticism and contributions? Well, I will give you the list of possibilities. Email on info at thoughthermes.com. Once more, that is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. On Facebook or Twitter, you will find us under Thoth Hermes and recognize our logo. Or you go on the website www.thoughthermes.com and there to the contact form. And if you are really cool, you use the voicemail offered on the website. Just check out the tab on the right of the screen. Looking forward to hearing from you. So that was it. Finally, let's start with what you have all come for today. Before we will play the interview with Dolores, as usual, a piece of music. Thomas von Wachenfeld is an associate professor in music at Umeå University in Sweden, where he teaches music theory, music history and teaching. He is a very versatile and interesting musician, a classically trained violinist and composer, but also a Swedish national folk fiddler and a death and black metal guitarist and singer. He composes for both rock and metal bands, as well as for chamber and symphony orchestras. Today we hear three of his softer pieces. At first, a piece in the traditional style of his home area in Sweden. The Polska till Lilith is dedicated to the mother of all creatures in the forests and mountains that surround his home. Thomas von Wachenfeld, Polska till Lilith.
Polska till Lilith by Thomas von Wachtenfeld. A wonderful contribution to nature and wilderness. Here comes the interview. I was a little bit nervous before I called Dolores Ashcroft Nowitzki to do our interview. At some point of my personal search, her writings and teachings and also her ritual books were of great importance to me. And when I say where, I don't mean they no longer are. I have learned so much with what she gave me that it is still all built into my daily practice. So when you get the opportunity to speak to someone like that, it is very special for you. For those of you who don't know much about her, she is the founder and head of the Servants of the Light, who provide esoteric teaching at a very high and interesting level with students from all over the world. She is originally from Jersey, United Kingdom, where she still lives today, but her extensive traveling has brought her all across the world, and she will talk to us about her experiences on those travels, her meetings with very different people. She recalls her youth, talks about the importance of rhythm in life, how she was prevented, as she calls it, a career as an opera singer. She tells us how she joined the Fraternity of the Inner Light and how she met Ernest Butler, a meeting that determined a lot of what was to come. And she also knows and speaks openly about what disputes in esoteric societies can mean. Dolores was extremely open and we had a very frank and direct talk. I hope you will enjoy. As always, this interview is split in two parts. After about 35 minutes, we will take a musical break. It is a great pleasure and honor for me and our listeners here on Thor's Hermes to welcome Dolores Ashcroft Dewitsky tonight as our guest. Thank you so much, Dolores, for giving us your time and talk to us tonight. It's my pleasure and my honor. Thank you. Well, Dolores, usually my first question is, and I would like also to put it forward to you, how did it in the first place all come to you? How did you get in touch with what we call the occult or the esoteric realms? How were you found or how did you found it? What was initially your path? I was born into a family that was full of it and full of psychics, <laughs> you know. My grandmother was uh, an out-and-out -out witch. <laughs> my grandfather had Viking blood. My mother came in the first place about three generations back from Druidic ideas. Her people came from Clanberas uh, up in North Wales. So my grandmother was really a very, very good psychic. She was of uh, part Romany blood and... She passed that on to my father. My father was the eldest of the three boys. And when he was younger, when I was uh, very young, he was uh, in the spiritualist church. He was a materializing medium. Um, but it began to interfere with his health, and he eventually gave it up. But he was always looking for 
things to find out about. He he wanted to know. He was just one of those people whose life was one big question mark. Where is it? What is it? What does it do? How can I get hold of it? And what I when I've got it, what can I do with it? And yet he was at the same time he was the most wonderful father anybody could wish for. He never said to me, you're asking too many questions. He would say to me, I don't know. On Saturday, let's go to the library and find out. He taught me to read before I went to school. I was the only child in the class that knew what the word stratosphere meant, but I couldn't spell it. He was so, so wonderful, so interesting to talk to. So when I was quite small, four or five, my mother got up one night hearing some strange noises and found her four-year-old, five-year-old daughter stark naked on the grass outside in the garden dancing. And uh, when asked, apparently I said the moon wanted me to come out and dance with her. When in the house that we lived in, there was um, two cottages knocked into one. And when the elderly lady who had the second cottage died, my father took it over and made one long cottage of it. So for the first time, I had my very own room. And I was convinced that the old lady that used to come and tell me stories and help me to go to sleep was my grandmother, only to find out in many years later that, no, it wasn't my grandmother. It was the old lady who never had children but always wanted them. Things like this cropped up. I learned to visualize when I was a child to such an extent that it began to be intrusive almost in in my schoolwork. I would go along a certain road to school. There was a beautiful old granite wall, and I learned that in that wall I could see a little gnome, and I used to stop and talk to him. And fortunately, one of the teachers caught me at it, and uh, I got carted off to a child psychologist who, thank the Lord, was Welsh and as psychic as they come himself. He said to me, you don't let anybody know. You keep it to yourself. And on the report he wrote, the child has an overactive imagination. She will get over it. Oh, yeah. You were very lucky to have met him. I've been lucky all my life, Rudolph. Mm -hmm. I have been kept safe in many times when there was... If things had turned out differently, I would have died. Yeah. If I may ask, how did your parents react, for example, when you were dancing with the moon? <laughs> did they Were they anxious or did they uh, accept in, in a certain way? No, my mother merely said, well, next time, darling, you'd better keep your nightie on. <laughs> <laughs> and when you said that you learned to visualize, did you learn it by yourself or did you at that time, I mean, have a some kind of teacher? No, it all came from inside me. Very, you you use both Tot and Hermes uh, as a call sign, mm -hmm. and Hermes has been with me 
in various guises almost all my life. And when um, I was at school, I used to spend the summer holidays not with other children. I didn't like playing with other children, didn't like games. I would spend it with my father's big atlas and I would plot out a world tour and look at all the places, make lists of where I wanted to go, what I would see, what kind of money they used, what uh, that particular country made. And then by the end of my kind of mental tour, of course, it was time to go back. And I would say to my father, when I grow up, I'm going to travel all over the world. Now, this was in the 30s in the Depression. Mm -hmm. He said to me, you'll have to have a lot of money to do that. Well, Rudolf, I have clocked up 28 different countries. I still don't have a lot of money, but I've made my dream come true. The only one I missed was Valparaiso in Chile. I loved the name. I got to Santiago. And I really got cross because I couldn't get to Valparaiso. Yeah. Um, I had to make do with Punta Arenas instead. <laughs> well, not so bad either, but <laughs> I can okay. understand your dream. <laughs> right. So at school, you got through because you had that psychologist who, who had given you the correct advice. And after that, at some point, I guess it became more present in your life, in the day-to-day life, and even I'm trying to find the right word, but as a as a constant activity, I would like to say. Oh, yes. I would read books that were probably too old for me. Um, my father had quite a good library, and I spent most of my time reading. I, I didn't... I didn't like being with other children very much. They tried to get me interested in games. To me, games were a waste of time mm-hmm. when you could be reading. So I consistently threw the wrong ball, threw the, threw the ball to the wrong people, namely my own side. Uh, and in the end, they decided that no, I was definitely not going to be any good at netball. Um, so they they let me sort of sit on the sidelines and read a book. One of the things my father taught me was the use of rhythm, rhythm and rhyme. He used to say to me, read poetry. Um, you will see how powerful rhyme and rhythm can be, because that's how you make a spell. When you make a spell, you has, it has to have rhythm and it has to rhyme, because that concentrates the mind. And when you concentrate the mind, that's when you let the spell go. But you've always got to be careful, as he said, to cut between you and the spell so it doesn't come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're talking about rhythm that interests me. And I'm professionally a trained musician, so rhythm is something that's dear to me in some way. But I remember a phrase, or not a phrase, a whole teaching by Rudolf Steiner, who says that rhythm in life, be it a daily rhythm, a monthly rhythm, a weekly rhythm, an annual rhythm, is very important because, as you say, it gives you, like a clock, it gives you the the timing for your life. Would you agree to that? And if so, how do you see it yourself? 
there are rhythms in in everything. Like you, I was brought up with music, classical music mostly. There was a time when I um, was at Trinity College of Music. I had hoped uh, one day to uh, sing in opera. Really? Uh, yes. But, um, I was put off. No, that's the wrong word. I was prevented. My teacher said to me, you have a good voice. You look all right. You have the uh, RADA training, because I'd been to RADA for theater uh, work. Um, but I want you to give it up. You don't have the ability to kick people in the teeth to get to the top. And I didn't. Mm -hmm. I out of Trinity College, never went back, but within two years I was studying it with the uh, Inner Light. So that must have been rather immediately after World War II. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, well, Diane Fortune's Society of the Inner Light, that I gather was the next big step for you, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, I was married, uh, and my husband and I joined together. And in 1964, we joined. But something very strange had happened before then. When we were still living in England, I got a book from the library. It was called The Magician's Training and Work uh, by Mr. Butler. And we thought it was wonderful. And of course, a library book, we had to take it back. And the girl said to me, well, never mind, you can take it out again in a couple of weeks because I have an order for it. So I went back and they told me there was no such book in the library. I asked again at another library, never heard of it. When I finally got to meet Ernest Butler, he said to me, You couldn't have read it. I hadn't written it then. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> My life That's, is full of things like that. That, that says a lot, absolutely. But, but how came it that your husband and you initially were enjoying the Servants of the Light? What drew you there? What was the intention or why the Servants of the Light? Can you still recall that? Um, well, it was the fraternity, the inner light. The servants of the light is yes. my own. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, um, again, <laughs> coincidence, you know, that word keeps coming up. I was going to London. My mother said, will you go to the Aquarium Press and buy me a set of tarot cards? And I said, yes, okay. Um, I went to the uh, place on, in Victoria Street in London, climbed three flights of stairs to this dingy little office. It had a, a little uh, bookcase with secondhand books on. And the man said, oh, I'll go and get uh, the tarot cards for you. And I went to look at the books and I saw a grimoire and I thought, oh, grabbed it, you know. Yeah. And as I was leafing through it, this hand came over my shoulder and took it away from me. And he said, that is not for you. This is for you. And it was a small booklet called Magic, It's, uh, it's Training and Work by Mr. Butler. And there was an address in the back for the fraternity of the inner light. And two weeks later, we were in it. And so your first meeting with Ernest Butler, that happened during those years, I guess. Yes. At first, when, um, when we went in, 
uh, into the inner light. Arthur Chichester, who was the warden then, refused to let us meet him. He said, no, there is too much connection with you spiritually. You must wait. And he uh, he made us wait until, oh, I think it was two years. Um, and then finally he said, uh, Mr. Butler will be uh, at the seasonal meeting. Uh, you can meet him then. And it was just amazing. It was as if we'd never been away from each other. And two years later, we uh, we were initiated. He had left the inner light at that time and had started to work with the Helios course with Gareth Knight. Yes. Then Gareth got um, a, the offer of a very good uh, job with Longman's Publishers and left. Ernest took it over and asked Michael and I to become supervisors with the Helios course. I went to Mr. Chichester and said, uh, is this all right with you? And he said, no, you have to leave the inner light. I said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to. He said, you can't serve two masters. And I said, well, which one would you advise me? He said, I can't advise you. You must make the choice. And I said, then I will have to go with Ernest. And I said, why? Why must I leave? And he said, because if you don't leave, you'll want my job. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that leaves you with an open mouth. So I can, can really understand that. Well... If I may interject a question here, you're touching here a subject that I also often meet in the occult societies or groups, which is those little games of power between members. And do you think this is something that's just a natural and necessary part of it? Or do you think it could be overcome in such groups or... You, with your huge experience in that field, how do you see that? Is that something you can't avoid? No, you can't avoid it because there's always going to be people for whom control is a big issue. They want to control. Um, and control and power are two more or less sort of together. Ernest used to say power is best given to those who don't want it. And I really didn't want it. I was quite happy learning. That's what all my life has been about. When I started to train with Ernest, um, people did get, the one lady in particular got really, really annoyed. She had known Ernest longer than I had and resented the fact that I was getting a personal training from him. It's always going to happen, Rudolf. It's yes. always going to happen. Sometimes people recognize it in themselves and they learn to control it. Other people give in to it and they will move for heaven and earth to either get what they want or they will go leave and, and go off in a huff, you know? Yes. Um, and start their own school. And and that, I think, is one of the outcomes that is very often the way. I've had three times now, I've had a student that was extremely good and really, really good. But the power thing was there. And 
it got to the point where they wanted to do this. I said, no, you have to do this first. Oh, well, if you won't let me do that, I will leave. Fine. So you leave. And two of those have started their own school. One of them has succeeded and succeeded reasonably well. Mm-hmm. But I do get stuff coming back saying, you know, I'm thinking of leaving. It's, I can't do the things that I want to do in the way that I want to do it. I'm not getting the training. And the control aspect is still there. You yeah. can't control this. Yeah. They are in control. Mm-hmm. The inner plane adepti. We... We're like chess pieces, Rudolph. They move us around to achieve a certain event or experience or happening that they need. Mm-hmm. And they they won't let you go. They will move you around until you are in the right position at the right time. And then they'll tell you what, what they want. But do you think that the creation of new schools in general is also something that is necessary naturally sometimes? I mean, if it's the right people who do it, or is it something that just disperses the knowledge and the contact? I think we have three daughter schools in the SOL, mm-hmm. schools that have... Their leaders have come out of the SOL, and we have said, fine, you're, you're in a sense, you're still with us, but you're a daughter school. Go out and do your own thing. One of those is in Mexico. Uh, Jorge Najera is an exceptionally well-trained, powerful magician um, who has, with his family, the entire family, like mine, was, uh, you know, into this. Mm-hmm. And has, he has become an exception, one of the finest schools that I have ever come across. Uh, there's another one in Trinidad, uh, Roger Caliste. Uh, in Trinidad, this is a man again who has inspired people to come together. And it's lovely to see that this is a an entirely different racial setup, but they are still part and parcel of the SOL. And, you know, it is so gratifying. Yeah. Only one has failed to achieve what I had hoped for them. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad sort of ratio. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I think you could be proud of that, should be proud of that. We come back to your personal story and further development in a second. I just have one question before that one again. What for you makes a good student? You just mentioned they were good students. What makes a good student? Curiosity. Desire to know. We're in the inner light, we were taught desire to know in order to serve. I have changed that in my own school to I desire to know in order to teach. I'm very proud of the fact that in the 50 years that I have been in this kind of work, Things have changed for the occult. We're not the pariahs that we used to be. Mm-hmm. We're not sort of uh, looked down on. You can't sack us simply because we happen to be a pagan, you know. Um, I have um, friends who are ordained priests 
Wiccan priests who go into the prisons in America and help the pagan prisoners there. That is, is, is something wonderful for me. You train yourself and then what you know you have to give out. Ernest always told us, when you learn something new, share it. Because it doesn't matter if people don't understand it right then and there. They will in some years to come. But it, it sends it out. And it, that knowledge floats around and other people will pick it up. It's not a case of, well, I can't tell you that until you have achieved the 14th degree of the order of the whatever, <laughs> you know, yes. as many people do. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, share it. Give it out. The more you share it, the more you give out, the more people will come to understand. If they don't understand it, they won't use it. If they're going to use it wrong, they'll soon find out. Yes. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, let's return to Ernest Butler. And I think we are in the late 60s now with, with our story, aren't we? Yes, 68, uh, going on, well, 70, 1970. He got this idea of um, a new school, mm -hmm. which eventually became the Servants of the Light. Yes. So how did that really happen? Uh, well, um The Helios, uh, which was originally a um, a book service, a second-hand book service, it was getting it was only a small business, and with the Helios course going so well, particularly in America, um, they were getting overrun with orders. So Ernest said, "Fine, we bought back the copyright from them, and gave it to Ernest, my husband and I, mm -hmm. and then he um, he got together." Uh, a small group of seven. There was Ernest, there was my uh, my husband and myself, Olive Ashcroft, who was no relation, but a lovely lady, uh, Tom Olliman, who was gay, and a um, lady called Mariton Geeky, very good um, psychic. Tom was an amazing person, a mystic to his fingertips. And one of the things, Rudolph, I am really, really proud of is the fact that the the SOL has never, ever stopped people from entering because they were of a different way of life. Yes. Now, the inner light would not have them. Mm -hmm. they, they barred you from that. There was a time when they barred people from, from quite a few things. We cut right through that yeah. and said, that's not what it's all about. What it's about is, have you got that curiosity? Have you got the desire to serve in order to teach? And Tom had it in spades. Mm -hmm. So in 1971, coming into 72, we set up the Servants of the Light. I didn't like the title at the time. I thought it was a bit twee. And I insisted on a secondary title, the Fraternitatis Alexandre. Mm -hmm. Ernest's contact was, that was where he had had most of his influence when he, we can't say when he was a human because he's never been human. Yeah. Uh, but it was where he was one of the great influences behind it. Yes. 
you know? Yes. And he had had this this contact with Ernest for a good 10 years. And he had said to Ernest, when the time comes, he would bring him a successor. So we started the uh, the SOL, as I say, uh, we registered it on the cusp of 71, 72. And from then on, it kind of took off. We were rather taken aback when they delivered two huge tea chests to uh, us in Jersey. Um, the Helios people had just simply put all their papers pertaining to it in that and just shipped them across. <laughs> and it, my husband, thank God, who's a, a wonderful accountant, managed to straighten it out, but it took him six months. But finally we got it up and running. Then from then on, you know, it, it the, everything started to just fall into place. Ernest said to yeah. me one day, uh, one day um, you know, of course, you're going to have to write a new course um, eventually. And I thought, yeah, <laughs> that's something that's not going to happen. But as usual, his, his psychism was very good. This was at a time where the occult, as you said before, started to be better seen by other people than maybe 30 years before. And it was a prolific time, I think, for certain currents in different ways. Mm -hmm. And also, if I remember well, it was at that time that Colin Wilson wrote his book, The Occult, and yes. I did a show about that a few weeks ago. So uh, that's a very prolific time. But it is very different a time from that today where we have the internet where those correspondence courses are very easy to be found etc so how in the early 70s how did people find you how did you do those courses were they courses face to face or did you already start with correspondence how did that all work in the early years of the SOL well it started very simply by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. um, Ernest had a lot of contacts in the USA, and it was mainly, and even still today, most of our work deals with um, uh, with the USA, although we do have students all over the world now. It, it just sort of grew by itself, you know? Mm -hmm. And then we, we got to the point where I wrote my first book, the Shining Paths, and much to my surprise, that kind of took off. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm still sort of uh, a little bit bewildered by the fact that it is now almost a, a cult book, you know. Um, yes, yes. If you haven't read it, then, you know, people tend to sort of even look down on you. You are, you are somebody who is very highly esteemed by most of the members of the cult uh, world, I would think. Well, Rudolf, you know, that still surprises me because, you know, as far as, as I'm concerned, I haven't done all that much. I love what I do. Mm -hmm. I love it with a passion. I love people. I love talking to people. And 
one of the things that I, I only realized about 10 years ago was the fact that when I was young, what I wanted to do in my life, I wanted to um, go on the stage. I wanted to be um, an actress. Uh-huh. And in the last few years of the war, I used to travel down to Rada for weekend classes and things like that. Then I changed to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. That all kind of not exactly came to an end. I did do some professional work for quite a while. Then I came home to Jersey and got married. That was a mistake the first time around. Um, but yeah, it's another story, a long story. Um, but you know, it's been. It, I I feel like a sheep that's been herded by a very determined sheepdog. Mm-hmm. And whenever I wanted to do this, and no, you know, you've got to do that. <laughs> and it was just one of those one of those things that. Ernest said to me, I'd gone over to uh, Southampton to, to um, stay with him for the afternoon. And I thought I had dropped asleep. I thought I'd, you know, and I said, and suddenly sort of came to myself. And Ernest was busy scribbling down. And he said, that was very good for your first trance. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know I'd gone, you know. Yeah. Um, but from then on, he started to train me quite deliberately. This is how you do it. This is how you maintain it. Now, there were different types of trances, I'm sure you know. There is a full mediumistic trance, you know, where mm. people lose consciousness. And then, of course, you've always got the ones that sort of scream and shout and sort of going, you know, oh, 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 oh little Doris is coming through. She was burnt to death in 1852, and, and now she's coming to me as a... Oh, I, I, that really gets me. It really does, you know. <laughs> But he trained me not as a medium, but as a mediator. Mm-hmm. And a mediator does not lose complete consciousness. Yes. There is that contact. It's almost like a telephone call where the line is not always very clear. But it does get clearer after a while. And then it settles down into a very direct inner message Uh, you may be sort of talking to someone you may be reading a book or walking down a street and all of a sudden there's a voice in your head that says this 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 and this and then it goes away again and you think yeah okay now i know what i've got to do and how do you experience your personal awareness during that moment of trance are you aware of where you are and who you are Oh, yes. Yeah. It doesn't. um, That's one of the good things about mediatorship is the fact that you are still conscious. It's it's like walking, having somebody walking beside you, talking to you Mm -hmm. as you're going down a road. You're still aware of what's around you and you're not going to step off the curb and get knocked down. But still, that person is holding a conversation with you. Mm -hmm. The thing is that when I was a child, I was what they call an objective clairvoyant. In other words, I could see things. Yes. 
one of the reasons why I was never really asked to children's parties after a while was because um, there was one party when I spent most of my time talking to the little old lady who was sitting in the corner uh, in a rocking chair. And I was totally fascinated by all the stories she had to say to me. And the child's mother is, said to me, what are you doing, dear? Why don't you come and, and join the... I said, no, I'm, I'm talking to the old lady. And she said, what old lady? <laughs> uh, yeah. After that, I didn't get invited back. Yeah. So objective clairvoyance. But as I moved into my late teens, I became subjectively... In other words, I couldn't see them, but I knew they were there. And I could describe them to you and I could hear them. And that remained until that never-to-be-forgotten day when everything changed. I'm sure you're going to tell us. <laughs> you know, what I, I feel I should do now, Rudolph, is say, and that I'm going to tell you at next time. <laughs> the next show. <laughs> well... This time the break in our interview sounds like a real cliffhanger. But no worries, Dolores and I will be back in a few minutes after a piece of music. This time we hear a symphonic work by Swedish composer Thomas von Wachtenfeld. Apollonian Contemplation, an intermezzo in the style of Storm und Drang. Thank you. 
Thomas von Wartenfeld, Intermezzo, Apollonian Contemplation. Let us now return and continue the talk with Dolores Ashcroft Novitsky. She is going to tell us about how it exactly happened that she took the succession of Ernest Butler. And believe me, when she tells that story, even now after 40 years, you will experience some very deep moments of emotion. Further on, some ideas about the connection between ritual and theater, the difference of work as a solitary or in a group. Regulars of the show know that this is one of my favorite questions to our guests. And then she talks about the danger of the ego when doing magic. Welcome back, Dolores. Ernest at that time had, had been invited back to the inner light and we, Michael and myself and Ernest were on our way to the inner light for the summer ritual that they always had. What year and are we talking about here? 74, 73, 74. Okay. We took him to an Indian restaurant because he loved uh, Indian food. And we were, it was on top of Haverstock Hill, which is a very long main road going uphill, very, very busy, very busy with traffic. And we sat, after the meal, we sat outside, uh, we still had half an hour, and Michael and Ernest were talking to each other, and I was just sort of gazing into space, and I... I felt some. I thought somebody had come out of the restaurant, and I look around, and I've got something that looks very like a seven-foot-tall Egyptian figure, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, I didn't see that. You know, we had some wine with dinner. This, no, absolutely no, I didn't see this. I looked again; it's still there, and now it's talking. And it's not, I can see the lips move, but it's inside my head. And it's saying, give him this name and tell him you've come to take over at his death. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to tell a 70-odd-year-old man who's just had a a serious uh, road accident. Um, You know, when you die, I'm going to (laughs) tell take what you, yeah, you know, it's it's just not done kind of thing. Not really, no. Really. Anyway, it was it, it was very, very persistent, and I turned around to Ernest and said, Ernest, what do you know about this name? And he smoked a pipe at that time, and the pipe dropped out of his mouth and fell and smashed on the pavement, and he said, that's the only pipe I've got. And Michael said, we'll buy you another one. And he looked at me and he said, it's time we went. We got up, never said a word. We got up, walked down, turned into Steele's Road, walking along. This is still following, saying, give him this name. Tell him that you've come to take over. So in the end, I can't stand it anymore. And I said to Ernest, and I tried to get it all out in one rush. Uh, by the way, Ernest, uh, I'm supposed to give you this name, and would you mind very much if I took over when you die? All in one long sort of sentence, you know. And he stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, you're late, you should have been here six months ago. And he wasn't talking to me. 
a few days later, he asked me to go over to Southampton, and he said, um, you will take over after me. I will Now I can start your training. And he trained me long and hard. He would show me how to go into a trance just just deep enough, not too deep, so that he could ask, still ask questions and I could answer. And I I was very frightened, Rudolf. I didn't want this. I really didn't. And I kept saying, no, I don't want to. I don't want to do this. I really don't want to do this. And in the end, he stopped asking. And about six weeks, six, seven weeks later, I was walking my dog in the early morning on the beach. It was a beautiful day, very early, nobody else on the beach. And coming towards me is this figure. And, you know, you when you, your stomach seems to fall out, <laughs> fall away from you. And it stopped about, oh, I don't know, 10 feet away. And I, I kept thinking to myself, this isn't, this isn't real, this isn't real. I can still see things through that figure. This isn't real. And the figure said, this is what I want. I want it to end well, but I cannot unless you allow it. And by indwelling, and people make such a to-do about this, they really do, and it annoys me. They say, oh, my God, you actually invited this thing into you. No, that's not what indwelling is, Rudolf. Mm -hmm. The inner level teachers have the same kind of structure, molecular speaking, particle mm -hmm. speaking, that the kind of we have, but so much finer so much finer and every particle of that is the whole it's a it's holographic mm -hmm. it's one tiny particle that they place wherever it is convenient for them to be with me it's in the vagus nerve and that's where in the end i said yes and it's been there ever since but ever since i perhaps inadvertently used the, the term indwelling because that was what was given to me. Mm. Oh, dear God, now, I, you can't imagine how many people, I've got an indweller, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm Isis, and, and I, or I'm sort of, you know, Osiris or whatever, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, for God's sake, you know, you can't be, they're dead, they're gone, you know. Yeah. Uh, the God forms that, that humanity created, that's what they were. They were just forms. The, it's the idea the, behind them. The, it's the, the power behind them that, that's, that you work with. And I, I, it's not that I walk around with a dirty great Egyptian God sort of sitting inside me. I've got a tiny particle of something that is infinitely finer, a lot stronger, a lot more knowledgeable, and far, far above me spiritually. That occasionally, not so occasionally actually, so 
it gives me information, ideas, tells me what to do, tells me what they want. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the most wonderful things I learned from them, Rudolph, it, he, whatever, said to me once, you know, whenever a human being reaches perfection and they no longer need a human body, then they move to where we are and we are allowed to go on. And it was the first time, Rudolph, I realized there is a hierarchy there. We think of the inner plane adepti as so wonderful and so high and this, that, and the other, but they are like we are to our students. When our students come up and say yes, you know, we say yes, now you're a teacher. In the same way, they say, good, somebody's come up, now we can go on. That is a wonderful thought. It is, absolutely. It is so wonderful. It really is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that because that's very deep and, uh, yeah, great. I probably talked everybody into a stupor. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. I'm just trying to get us to the next question I have without being mundane after this. <laughs> Those matters we are talking about are usually called the Western tradition, the Western esoteric, Western mystical tradition, whatever you name it. Um, at the same time, I th personally, and I wonder what's your take on that, I personally see many of those currents much more holistic than just Western. But then there are others who say, well, if you are from a very different uh, country, a very different background, you might have a hard time to get along with another tradition from another area of our world. What's your take on that? Those experiences you make, the teachings you give, are they universal or are they linked to a certain tradition and background in people? That is really, really hard because at one point, yes, I would have to say yes, because we use a, basically we use the Kabbalah. Yeah. Um, and that is kind of along the Western tradition. On the other hand, you know, you can look at the Kabbalah and you can put any single tradition you name on that mm. and it will fit. You know, in my travels, I've I worshipped in synagogues, in mosques, in in um, Hindu temples, in Chinese temples, in Shinto. The universal creator, the the universal mind, whatever we like to call what other people call God, mm -hmm. it, it it you can't put it in a box. It's too big. It's It's so universal. It's only we who say, this is a Western tradition, this is a Hindu tradition, this is a Shinto tradition. And basically, it's the same. Because we humans always seem to find a necessity to put a label on things, and maybe <laughs> that's why. <laughs> yeah. 
No, but I, I, I can understand what you mean, and I do agree. You mentioned that a lot of your pupils, students, um, a lot of your contacts also are in the USA and on the other side of the ocean. That's even something that I experience with my podcast, which is based in Europe and in Central Europe of all places. I do it in English because two-thirds of my audience is from the United States. <laughs> Sometimes I think, well, too bad, because somehow a lot of those traditions uh, came out of Europe and, and also of the part of, the, of Europe that I'm living in. And that's also why I'm trying to do this podcast. But do you have, with all the experience that you made also uh, in the United States, do you have an explanation for that? Well, I've been going to the to the U.S. since 1975, twice a year. The racial angels don't even bother to ask me for my passport. <laughs> <laughs> the United States, I, I love it. I, I love the states. I love the I love the people. Uh, I've got so many friends there. They're practically family there. But they they're still, in a sense, young a young nation. They're like a teenager. They still they're only about two hundred and fifty years old, you know. Sure. Yeah. Whereas we are a thousand years old or more. Um, but they're growing well. They really are. They're open-hearted, open-minded. They're, they're eager for knowledge. You do get the occasional one that you want to sort of kick off a cliff, you know. <laughs> but, you know, you I do. You get that in any country, believe you, me. <laughs> you really do. Uh, the only place we don't have any students is France. And the, the really? French like yes, the French don't like us for some unknown reason. But they are so open. And one of the things we you have to remember about America is so many of them are their ethnic background can be any one of five or four mm. different relation different traditions you know i get people uh, coming in i get a, an entry form and you know uh, where were you born and, and you know this that and the other and they'll say uh, oh i'm a polish irish welsh uh, and sort of austrian descent yeah and proud of it and they're very aware of it also and yeah. very aware of it you know um and and that's good because it, it it's an indication of how the world is, it really should be. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be separation, yes. you know? Yes. We have, you know, we've got people from Trinidad, we've got people from India, we've got um, Japanese people, you you name it, and we've, we've, we've got it. And they're lovely. They're, they're, they have that desire to know. And so long as they've got that, Rudolph, I will teach them. Yes, I also would say that my experience is that the curiosity is stronger in the so-called new world. Yes. And that's certainly in much in their favor when we speak about the occult arts and your teachings. That's absolutely right. It, it's, it's like all young people there, or children are eager to know. Yes. It's not to say that, the, you know, the, um, the Americans are like children. They have, 
as I said, they are a young country. They're uh, in sort of human terms, it's like late teenagers going to college or high school or something like that. And look what's come out of that, apart from the fact that, you know, there aren't a few people that shouldn't come out of it. <laughs> um, we've got, I mean, people like Carl Sagan, you know, a, an incredible mind. It really is. People like uh, Michio Kaku, who is amazing. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yes. Wonderful man. It's really it's one great fun to, to talk to. Uh, Joseph Campbell. I mean, these are great minds that are coming out of America. Absolutely. We need to go back to 1976 because that's, I think, when Ernest handed you over, if I may say it like that. Well, he retired in that year, yes. if my information is correct. I was the last one, incidentally, to get to know. People rang me up and said, congratulations, Dolores. And I said, <laughs> what? what? What's happened? Oh, well, Ernest has just retired. <laughs> and, and, no, and two days later, I got a little letter from Ernest saying, by the way, I've retired. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you take that? So fine. Well, it, the time had come that you had taken over. Well, I cried my eyes out for days. Oh. It suddenly dawned on me what what I'd taken on. Responsibility? Yeah. Uh -huh. it, it, it kind of weighs you down. Oh. That was until I realized it took a while that people weren't ready to sort of tear me apart. They were looking to me and saying, yes. You know, and when you say people, you mean the students? Yes. yes. Yeah. I upped my um, traveling. I started to travel much wider, um, not only to the states but to Canada, um, to um, Mexico, to the Caribbean, Norway, Sweden, uh, Germany, Holland. Now, of course, it, it's extended even even further, and that was that. Of course, uh, uh, includes uh, England and that. But I think when I look back, I, I said to you um, that I had done theatre training, uh, and that was what I thought I was going to do in my life. Now, looking back over it, I can see what the inner plane adepti were thinking. Well, sure, we'll let her do this. You know, this will be good training for her. So, you know, you can stick me in front of 12 people or 1,200. It doesn't faze me. Yeah. I, You know, this is something I can do. Well, here I have a personal question for you linked to that. Um, you said you were training as an actress and as a singer. And uh, as you may know, this is also my background. I'm more in arts management now, but I, I have the same training. So being on stage, talking to people is familiar, but also when I started doing rituals, ceremonial ah, yes. magic, this is something that is very close to my heart and soul and mind, I would say. And I know, and not only I know, I own most of your ritual collection books, which I really <laughs> cherish because they are treasures in there for me. Would you also say that, that's a tricky one, I'm not saying ritual is theater, of course, but because of your training, do you have more understanding and sense for ritual? 
Absolutely. Mm. Um, it teaches you to to move. It teaches you to speak because um, ritual needs to be declaimed. Yes. You know, it's, um, when I used to and when I still do um, write uh, rituals, I tend to use a very Shakespearean type of, uh, mm. of speech. You know, you need to be able to your voice needs to carry um, your gesture, the way you move and the way you handle sacred objects all this needs to be learned mm. I do uh, well I do them myself now I've trained people to do them for me um, uh, f- three workshops which go uh, which actually teach ceremonial magic and ritual and and you know going from the the very beginnings and then taking them through yes it does need that kind of of, of training it's very useful people tend to um, especially if they're given a part they read it they literally read it you know and you can't you can't. <laughs> you you you've got to be there you've got to be in it you've got to Use the words, the the voice, the cadence, the rhythm. It had the rise and fall of the speech. Yes. The emphasis that you put on certain words, and in, it's um, it's it's all part and parcel of ceremonial ritual. But the thing about ritual is, and people don't always understand or even believe me, there comes a time when you don't need it anymore. <laughs> Well, you're speaking to my heart by saying that exactly. I think I understand what you mean. One question that I try to to ask uh, most of my guests here. There are people who do their spiritual and occult practice as solitary workers and who only accept that or would say that's the only way they can succeed. There are others who say, no, their only way to succeed or advance is group work, being part of an order, etc. Well, there is no truth. Probably the truth lies in everyone uh, individually. But how would you balance solitary work and group work? What's, what's your take on that? Group work is very supportive. And when you're if you you're um, if very new to it you have the support of others to show you how to do things to how um, to move and how to talk and this that and the other and you learn it's rather like rehearsing a play mm-hmm. you know a solitary um, mage is very often more inclined towards mysticism rather than magic although magic does come into it Eventually, very I found very often in a group, one or two of them will not exactly move away from the group, but they will do most of their own personal work as a solitary mage. There's room for both. You know, if you start out as a solitary, that's harder because there's no one to uh, hold you, you know, um, take no, no, not like that, mm-hmm. like you know and you don't takes over yes yes. oh yeah Mm -hmm. i learned that very early you know Mm -hmm. it was uh, many many years many years ago i came around the corner and just when i was looking up at the window and thinking that's the window to my little temple and some people were coming towards me and i thought you don't know what I've got up. <laughs> <Right> <laughs> down. 
And all of it, it was almost like a, a verbal slap that I got from the inner levels. You will not think in this way. Otherwise, we will take it away from you. Okay. Yes, you know, it can take over. Yes. Ego is always going to be there. <laughs> Definitely. All our life, we have to fight it, I think. The best thing to do is to conjure up uh, what a witch would call a familiar and have your ego as a little pet. And then yeah. you can always discipline it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Like a token. Yeah. 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 What are your projects, upcoming projects, books, special uh, events, things that you would like to let our listeners know about? Oh, well, at the moment, I am trying very hard to uh, write a, a book called My First Book of Magic, which is for pagan children. Mm -hmm. uh, Christian children have uh, books about the saints and Jewish children have books about their, um, their religion and what have you. But there's nothing for pagan children to say, this is what magic is and what it isn't. This is how you make a wand. This is what you do with a wand. This is, you know, all the little things. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make a little book for them that says all these things, but at their level, you know? Yes. So it, they can understand that it's not a bad thing to be a witch or a pagan or whatever, you know? Um, it just means you're special and you're different. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. I'm trying very hard to sort of um, write my biography because I'm really afraid if other people start to write it, they won't. <laughs> they, they don't know me like I know me. Probably they don't know. <laughs> the other thing is, at 88, I'm beginning to um, not be able to travel as, uh, as much as I, I used to do. And uh, so I'm... Putting up, I'm hoping to start in January the 1st, uh, something called Solar Light, which is um, all my lectures and articles that I've written over the last 40, 50 years, um, I'm going to put on uh, video. Okay. So that there are a lot of people now, travel is so expensive, they can't come to workshops. So I can come to them in that. Uh, what I'm asking them to do is to for $30 a month, they get two videos. It's roughly the cost of two DVDs or, or, or a, a nice book or something like that. And they will get two videos each month. And at the end of the six months, they want to stop. Fine. If they want to go on, then we go for another six months. That's, you know, how I'm trying to do it. It's, it's taking a lot of time and a lot of setting up because Jersey being a tax haven, I have to be very, very careful mm -hmm. so that I'm not accused of money laundering, you know, because um, this will have to go through things like PayPal. Yeah. So, um, yes, it's I've got the, as I said in the beginning, I've got the most wonderful techie who's doing a wonderful website for me. Um, and we've got a lovely new logo, which is I'm very proud of. Um, I have a, a one of my uh, students is a superb graphic artist, and he's done this lovely logo. It's um it's a circle, it's a, like a full of stars, and there's a hand reaching out like this with a sun in the center, and I'm saying. Here is my hand. This is what I'm offering you. This is what I'm 
I want to give to you. And what I'm, I've said to some people, look, I know I can't go on forever, but all the, the knowledge that I've collected, all the workshops, the rituals, the um, lectures that I've done, the people out there are my heirs. This is how I can give something to you before I shuffle off this mortal coil. I have now had the privilege to see you also for an hour, which for me was also new. I so far only read you. And I can only say to my listeners that uh, they should go for those videos because to experience you how you say things, it's, it's, part of the, it's part of the teaching, I would say. And I will make sure to keep an eye open on that website when it comes uh, out and mention it then in my podcast and on my website so that people will find their way to you. And that was a perfect transition for my very last question. Where, Dolores, do you take that amazing energy at 88? How do you do that? <laughs> well, believe it or not, I get it from that little indweller. You know, he provides the energy I need. I only have to ask. I only have to need. And it's, it's there. You know, when I was born... The midwife was Irish, and she said to my mother, she was born with her mouth open. She'll not close it now. <laughs> yeah. And this is the contact that I work with. It was also known for the ability to speak and to teach. That's all I want to do, Rudolf. Mm-hmm. I want to share, not teach in that sense of the word, of being above people and talking down to them. No, I want to share what I've got and what I've found out and what I've experienced. And I just I just love what I do. Well, one can feel that. And I'm very glad you took the time to share all of this that you had to say today with me and with our listeners today. I am very grateful for that and for your time. It was a really special meeting for me. Dolores, thank you so much. Thank you also in the name of the listeners of Thoughts Hermes. Thank you. And to all of you who are listening, my love and my blessing. Thank you. Thank you, Rudolf, very much. It's been a delight. Two months have passed since I did this recording with Dolores. And when a few days ago I edited it, it occurred again to me. I was just fascinated by that personality and the way she talks to us. I don't know if you heard when she mentioned her age briefly. Dolores is now 88, and it is incredible how she sounds like some girl in her late 20s at the most. And behind all that is the wisdom of a soul much older than her material age. Amazing. The News We are not going to leave Dolores Ashcroft-Novitsky completely yet. Towards the end of the interview, you heard that she was talking about a new website where her work and experience over the last 50 years will be available for students who do not have the opportunity to attend her classes in person, 
but who would also like to hear and see her speak directly. This website will only be really available from January 2018 onwards, but their welcome page where you can also inscribe yourself to be informed once the project is fully online, it's already there and you can go there and visit it. Its web address is www.solarlight.one. I will spell that for you. So that's www.solar-light.one. Solar-light.one. Before we continue with our next news item, let's play our third piece of music today. This time the piece by Thomas von Wachtenfeld is called Masonic Word, and it's a song taken from the album Visions of Dunkelheit by his two-piece band Large Doom. Lyrics by Eric Hellmann. Thank you. 
Masonic Word by Thomas von Wachtenfeld. Lyrics by Eric Hellman. Those of you who were listening to our last episode, number 11, probably remember that I talked about an upcoming second edition of the Colin Wilson Conference in Nottingham, United Kingdom, in July of next year. I have in the meantime received an update on the contact. If you want to know more, get the exact and regularly updated program, or would like to do a booking, go to www.pauperspress.co.uk slash conference.html I repeat that, pauperspress, that's p-a-u-p-e-r-s-p-r-e-s-s dot c-o dot u-k slash conference dot h-t-m-l It will be a really interesting event. And by the way, you can, as always, find all those news items on my webpage, www.sothermes.com. So if you not were able to write down those links I gave out here, just go there, choose the news section, and you will find everything that you need. You can even click directly. Finally, I would like to attract your attention to the Quareya Magician's card deck. This extraordinary card deck, made up of 81 cards, is a collaboration between Josephine McCarthy and artists Stuart Littlejohn and Cassandra Beanland. The number of 81 is a mystical number that relates to completion, and the cards are divided into four realms. The Divine Realm, Red Borders, the Inner Realm, Blue Borders, the Physical World, Green Borders, and the Realm of Death and the Underworld with Black Borders. The further away from humanity a being or place is, the less human it becomes. This is reflected in the deck and can teach a magician a great deal about how beings function and why. I was lucky enough to be able to buy a copy of the first edition and I loved both the way they look and also to work with them. But this first edition was soon sold out and the day after tomorrow on October 21st a crowdfunding on pre-order for the second edition will start. So if you are into magical card desks something also different from the classical tarot and have not yet got this one this is the occasion go to the Korea website www.korea.com and look what you need to do to be sure to get a copy this time round and of course also this link can be found on the news page on our website Books and other reviews. Today I would like to present to you two books by the same author, Gwendolyn Womack. Gwendolyn is American, born in Texas and currently resides in Los Angeles. Her life has brought her places, among others she also lived in Japan for some time. 
The two books that I review here are her first and her second novels. The first is titled The Memory Painter, and it was published about two and a half years ago in April 2015. In this 300-page thriller, she is presenting the story of an internationally famous painter whose secret is that his paintings find their origins in his extraordinarily vivid dreams. Then he meets a woman neurogeneticist who, as she is trying to decode the part of the brain that stores memories, is fascinated when she finds out about his capacity. The story then leads the two all the way to ancient Egypt. This incredible and very fascinating plot bridges 10,000 years of history and thousands of kilometers across the world. It is an excellent thriller, a real page-turner. The second book is called The Fortune Teller and has been published in June this year, so it's quite new. And again, we are carried through a story spanning between a New York-based auctioneer and, on the other hand, the Times of Cleopatra. But this is neither a repeat nor a sequel to the first book. It's a completely different story about a manuscript and a priceless tarot deck. What might the prophecy hidden in this manuscript be presented for auction mean? And does the tarot deck from ancient Egypt really exist? Again, Gwendolyn Womack has created a real page-turner also here. You might say, why presenting thrillers in an esoteric podcast? Well, I will tell you why. First, the background to both the stories are clearly set in an ambience and historical background that has links to our magical and occult arts. Be it the presentation of dreams like astral travel or using the tarot as a real book of thought, those subjects are part of our esoteric world and, honestly, I love reading those great and very dense books by many of our great occult authors, but very regularly I also like to read a well-written thriller. And when the subject of such a book is something I work with regularly, something that I know about and which is important to me, like the tarot for example, it makes it all the better for me. And best with Gwendolyn is that those books are well-researched and so much better written than some of those big bestsellers that use esoteric and occult subjects. I'm not going to give names, but you might understand which ones I mean. It is difficult to present two thrillers telling more about their stories and not to spoil anything, so I'm not going to reveal more of what you will find in them. But what I definitely want to say is that Gwendolyn Wonak's way of writing is exciting, but also stylistically interesting and a real nice read. So, if you are looking for a nice read, some high-level entertainment without having to give up your favorite subjects of occultism and paranormal, go for those books. Both were published by New York publishers Picador, and are available on all the online stores also in Europe. Definitely worth the read. 
I will, of course, give you all the information and links on the reviews page on our website. And this brings us, friends and listeners, to the end not only of our episode number 12, but of the first season of the Thoth Hermes podcast. As I have said earlier, our season 2 will start on November 9. And here I am also to reveal who will be our featured interview guest. It is author and lecturer Angel Millar, whose book The Crescent and the Compass about the relationships between Freemasonry and Islam has just been released in an expanded second edition. He is also the owner of the great website Phalanx. I can promise this is going to be a great interview. You will be enjoying it. But before that, don't miss out on our first seasonal special edition for Samhain Halloween, coming to you on, of course, October 31st. And I'm looking forward to receive and present your contributions. Also, stay tuned for an upcoming announcement on the content of a new membership episode called New Moon, which will be released every, yes, you got it, New Moon. November 18 will be the first one. I thank you for your fidelity and curiosity in accompanying Thoth Hermes through our first season. It has been exciting to produce it, and I hope you learned as many things as I did. I'm very much looking forward to have you back soon on our Halloween show and then for our season two. In the meantime, have a good time a lot of inspiration and deep experiences. Wendy Rule and her night sea journey are telling me to leave you now. So, this is again the moment to give you my farewell greetings. Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon. So-